From the Hollywood Gallery of the Peterson Automotive Museum, this is Car Stories at the Peterson. Welcome into another episode of Car Stories. My name is AJ. And I'm Chris. And today we are joined by Ed Justice Jr. of the Justice Brothers. Uh, Ed, we spent a good amount of time trying to figure out, one, how to introduce you, but two, what we, the questions and how, what we can ask you and how we can go through not only you, but your whole family's timeline and rich history. Uh, so thank you so much for coming in. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. I you know, always love coming to the Peterson. I love what you guys are doing with this place, uh, all the scaffolding. I know it's just a transitional thing, but I love it. Yeah, you, you can hear the transition in process right now. That's it. It sounds like they're trying to come in here. You might hear a little jackhammering in the background, uh, but uh, bear with us. Well, it backs up that it's all true. Yeah. <laughs> well, if anybody asks, it's our under construction exhibit. Yeah. It's our uh, LA uh, construction exhibit we're doing. So, but before we get into what you're doing now and all the projects you're working on, we thought we'd go. All the way back to the start in the beginning. What's your first automotive memory? You know, I thought about this long and hard the other day because I thought you guys were going to probably ask me this question. And I honestly don't have a first uh, car memory. I, I've got some early memories. Uh, cars have always been part of my life. Uh, I mean, my dad and uncles were in the, deep into the car you know, world prior to my birth. Uh, by a long time and so I was raised with cars and and I don't really I mean it's something I, I really am honestly going to think about after I leave here today because uh, it's not like it was a bad memory and you blanked it out you know like they say people do you know you right, yeah I wasn't hurt or you know I wasn't in a bad car wreck at the age of two or but I just don't you know it's cars have always been part of my life what, so then, with your dad and your uncle starting the Justice Brothers, I assume they were the brothers, um, how did it all come along? When did it come about? What, did, what was the beginning of Justice Brothers then? Well, there, yeah, there was my dad and two uncles. There were three Justice Brothers. Uh, my dad was Ed, and I had an uncle that was known as Zeke Justice. His real name was Lawrence. And I had I'd an, go by Zeke yeah. if I was Lawrence. Well, you know what? Uh, I tell you, with a name like Zeke, nobody ever forgets you. No, because, yeah, you know, that's true. How many Zeke's do you know? You know, I mean, that one. <laughs> yeah, unless you live in in some state with uh, hill country or something like that. I don't, you know, I don't know. I mean, there, you know, there's there's uh, there are Zeke's, and it's a whole long funny story how he got that nickname. But anyway, and then I had an uh, uncle named uh, Gus, whose uh, name was uh, James, or or and his middle name was Russell, and that's where the Gus came from. But He's sort of the forgotten brother because he had gotten paralyzed in an automobile act, accident at 21 years of age, and so he was in a wheelchair all of his life. But they started, really, the first Justice Brothers business was when they were rebuilding bicycles back in their hometown of Paola, Kansas, about 1,500 population when they were growing up. Small little farm town south of Kansas City. You know, square like uh, the Music Man, you know, the bandstand and all that. And their mom was really the car guy in their family. Uh, their dad was an auctioneer, and uh, he was not a mechanical type of a person. And their mom had been raised with, I think, six or seven brothers. And so she was a tomboy. And she would go out and help them find these bicycles, finance them to buy the bicycles, and then have my dad and my uncle Zeke, because my uncle Gus didn't like to get his hands dirty. He was more of the, uh, he worked in a men's store uh, when he got to a certain age. And uh, they would rent or sell the bicycles after they'd recondition them. So that's, that was the first time they actually had, quote, a Justice Brothers. They were very close. I mean, they were old school. They had, there were the three boys and then there were three sisters that were older. And they were a very, very tight-knit family. They were raised in the time where you, you protect your brothers, you protect your sisters, and the blood is thicker than water feeling. Mm -hmm. I it mean, was this sort of the Depression era? Yes, yeah. They came through the, you know, out of the Depression era. They were through that. My dad was born in 1921, 
And so the Depression, you know, in the early 30s, and of course the Depression lasted 10 years, it was definitely a part of their life. Yeah. And I think it did. My dad really never talked much about the Depression in that regard, but I know it molded him because my dad was a very much pay-as-you-go type of a person. All my uncles were. They were not big credit people. Uh, they, my dad, you know, I was raised, Ed, if you can't, if you can't afford it, don't buy it. Right. And uh, they were solid, old school, that European sort of mentality. You know, I mean, you, you go to Europe and you find a person has a watch and they've owned that watch all their life. Now, maybe it's changed over the years. You know, over here in America, you know, you have a kid that's maybe 16 that's already got 10 watches, if yeah. they're buying watches at all anymore. But, right. but, but the thing is... And that's not a bad thing. I'm not knocking the American people because we're consumers and that keeps people employed. But it's just a different, you know, school of thought. Sure, sure. So how did, how did you go or how did your dad go from the pedal power to more automotive? And when did they get into cars? Well, they, you know, they grew up reading uh, Floyd Clymer, who was a local L.A. publisher. Uh, did the indie yearbooks and other things, and Popular Mechanics. And, of course, Popular Mechanics is, uh, has its share of automotive stuff in it always. And they'd read about all these racers, and, and they were just, you know, the car was pretty new still in their, in their era. And they were just car crazy. I mean, they really just, they consumed this stuff. And so they, they built a little midget. Midget Auto Racing started in California here in the early 30s, and they'd read about it, and they built a little midget of their own with a Whippet motor in it, you know, Whippet four-cylinder motor. A Whippet was an old car, one of the old versions of cars for people who may not know. And then they also put a Henderson Super X motorcycle engine in it one time. The Whippet ran better, according to what they said. Yeah, this isn't a little person being pulled by a dog. No, no. Which is <laughs> probably what small, some small race car. They're like a sprint car, which some people go, well, that helped me a lot. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but oh, it's a, a dirt car. car. Oh, you know, a, it's a dirt car. Yeah. You know, the sprint car has been in the news, obviously, recently because of that tragic accident with Tony Stewart. But they're smaller than those. They're the smallest form professional sort of. And, and they built one, and they'd run it around town illegally. And, of course, the they didn't make the mayor or the police chief very happy but they they uh they loved that and of course at the same time my dad was consuming about the california culture and california was the car capital of the world some will argue that it still is yeah. uh, we definitely have embraced the car more than any other place in the world and that's sort of what the peterson museum's all about really at its core and you know he he the first chance my dad got in the late 30s, he came to California. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, he, my dad loved palm trees. That impression of the California with the palms and all that was so imprinted on him that we had palms at, my, at our home when I was growing up. You come out to our headquarters, we've got palms like you cannot believe. <laughs> my, I mean, it, my dad just bought into that whole California culture. The, the clean cars, that you could drive your car year-round, you could have chrome on your car and keep it clean. You know, it's so different sure. than in Kansas with the mud and sleet and snow and all yeah. that. So, so anyway, I mean, that's, that's sort of the way it worked. And he, he got, my, my uncle had got, gone to work at Western Auto and had a good job in Kansas. And my dad ran into a guy at the Ocean Park Ballroom in Santa Monica and this guy was a male secretary for a multimillionaire by the name of Joel Thorne, who had inherited a huge amount of money at about 10 or 12 years of age. His dad got killed in a, uh, in a wreck. He was by his car by the side of the road and got hit and got killed. And Joel's dad was old East Coast money, banking, Pullman rail cars, I mean real money as they say. And Joel inherited this money at a young age. And when he got old enough that the trust started giving him money, he built his own race shop by the Burbank Airport. And he had the best of the best guys working for him. And this guy was Joel's male secretary, and my dad got my Uncle Zeke a job there. And that was really the, a big turning point for them. That, that seems like a common 
I, I don't know what to call it, but a rich kid getting into racing and not in a bad way, that seems very common from like the beginning of racing to now. A lot of racers, especially, I mean, even in NASCAR or Indy or Formula One, you have to come from some means to get into that. So it's neat how racing's expensive. Yeah, yeah well, you know, you know the old the old joke. You know, you know how you make a small fortune in racing. You start out with a large one. Yeah. Yeah. So is, is that because you guys have such a, a prevalent career in racing? Is that how you guys first got involved in the racing? Is through him? Well, yeah. You know, it, it, first racing uh, in my life, in my dad and uncle's life, knowing all their friends, uh, I've met. A, an interesting cast of characters in the racing industry. I mean, it's been all types and all walks of life, et cetera. How they got into racing was when my uncle Zeke got that job, this is again, pre-war, he met another guy that worked at that shop by the name of Frank Curtis. Well, uh, being with all these top guys, Joel, Joel was a good friend of Howard Hughes. And Hughes would come there. And in fact, at one time, Joel, they were setting up a wood shop in his shop. They were going to build parts for the Spruce Goose until uh, Washington killed that deal mm-hmm. when they, you know, uh, just toasted Hughes up on Capitol Hill, you know, mm-hmm. just ran him through the ringer that it was a bogus plane or, you know, all that stuff. But anyway, so when my dad went into the war, he was the only one, because my Uncle Zeke uh, suffered from uh, polio at five years of age. And so as bad as they needed bodies in World War II, they still were not taking people that had one leg shorter than the other. And so my dad went over to Europe, spent time over there in the 8th Air Force. And when he came back, at that point, Frank Curtis decided to start formally Curtis Craft. And uh, my Uncle Zeke was his first employee. And there's a car sitting up in the lobby right here. When we walked in, the Ross Page Special, my Uncle Zeke was one of two guys that built that car. Uh, Frank designed it, and my Uncle Zeke and Emil Deep built that car. And uh, so he, when my dad got discharged out of the military, he got a job at Curtis. Uh, My Uncle Zeke got him a job at Curtis Craft, and they both were fabricating aluminum bodies, uh, you know, painting cars, doing everything in Glendale. And the buildings are still there today. I I did a video deal over there recently. And uh, that was the beginning for them in the racing world. And doing that, my uncle helped build the Novi, a legendary Indy car. He was involved in a lot of legendary cars. And same with my dad, Uh, midgets. They built over 500 reported midgets at Curtis Craft, and at that same time, they started their own shop on the side, Justice Brothers Race Car Repair and Fabrication, and they'd work there at night and on the weekends because the demand for these little midgets after the war was so big that Curtis could not literally build them fast enough. So you could take them two ways. You could take them as a finished car or as a kit. Well, if you took a kit, you could get your car quicker. Mm -hmm. But if you took a kit and you didn't know how to build it, You'd have to find somebody. Yeah, you'd have to find somebody to build it, and so that's where my dad and my uncle Zeke would build those kits for people at night and on the weekends. And uh, you know, the cars were raced at Gilmore Stadium, right up the street here from the Peterson, and that was the premier midget track in the country. No, not wood track. Yeah, it was Santa Monica down the road the other way. Yeah, actually, you know, we're close to a number of great racetracks here at the museum. I mean, it really is. The wood track, the board track, as they actually called them, down the, the street was at the intersection of Santa Monica there, the, the, uh, and that was only about four or five years. Great idea, but, but wood doesn't last very long. No. You know, Especially huge if there's a fire. Yeah, especially when a car right. catches fire. Right, but that was a day. In fact, Gaston Chevrolet got killed at the board track over here at Santa Monica. I think it was Gaston, and he was driving a green car, and, and to the best of everybody's recollection, that's where the color green became bad luck in racing. Which it isn't anymore. Nobody even knows about these old wow. deals. Eating peanuts in the pits was bad luck in the early days. It's a whole another <laughs> long story. But and you had to wear white out on the track. And anyway, it's all this old stuff. It's all gone now. So so you uh, they they built cars and then somehow they ended up in the oil industry or the lubricant industry. How did that happen? Well, yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, my I I 
I've come to the conclusion that my dad and uncles were like the Ferris Buellers of the automotive industry. They happened to be at the right place at the right time when history was happening, and they seized the opportunity. They were never, they, first of all, they had tremendous self-confidence, and they were never afraid of taking on a challenge. And those two traits, uh, along with the ability to work hard, uh, served them very well in their lives. So my Uncle Zeke ran into an additive uh, and a uh, new oil product, and he was impressed by it, knowing that my dad was really the marketing guy. See, my, my Uncle Zeke, my, my dad was a trained aircraft mechanic. He worked at Douglas Aircraft prior to the war mm -hmm. out here in Santa Monica, and uh, I didn't mention that. And, and so he was a very good mechanic. But my Uncle Zeke was really, really the serious mechanic. He really, I mean, up to, my Uncle Zeke died at 81, literally six months before he died, he was under a car and on 80 degree day working on it, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. Sure. And, and my dad was the salesman, marketing, uh, you know, the front man, so to speak. And then my other uncle, uh, Gus, who was in the wheelchair was the finance guy. He was the best educated. He actually went to a short time to college before he got injured. And uh, so they all had their parts. So he knew, my Uncle Zeke knew that if he got my dad interested in this product, that him being the motivator of the family, it would probably make it happen. And so my dad saw it. And for some unknown reason, I tried to get them to answer this question. They could never give me a good answer. Why did you guys realize you were not going to get rich building race cars? I mean, how did you come to that conclusion? Sure. Because a lot of people never do. And, and uh, they, they did. And that clearly, really, uh, for our family and our future, was a major turning point. You know, you look at a person's life and, and the paths that they take, and uh, why they go left instead of right, and what would have changed if they had gone right instead. Well, this was one of those points where it was a major turning point. And they got the distributorship for this product. They, they had built a midget of their own, raced it once at Gilmore, sold it, made $2,500 profit, took that money, and bought $2,500 worth of this product that we're in a conference room here, if it was made at one end of the conference room, nobody knew about it at the other end of the conference room. I mean, it was unknown. Yeah. It was a yeah. brand new product. And they decided to go to Florida, Georgia, and Cuba as their territory, uh, wow. settling in Jacksonville to sell this product. Now, And the product was from here in California? Yes. It was made here in California. And, and, and this uh, was an additive then? It was an additive, yeah, right. And... Uh, and they, the, the product name was Wins, and you probably are familiar with it. It, it was a brand that people used to know a lot more. Uh, and uh, they, the, the big thing, though, is my mom was six months pregnant when they were going to be moving down to Florida. Now, uh, if you're married, uh, that's one thing. If you're married and you have kids and you've gone through that whole childbirth thing, then you can relate to this maybe a lot better. How do you tell your wife that, honey, we're going to move down to Florida, meaning we're going to move from one side of the United States to the other side of the United States, and in three months you're going to have a child, and we're going to get a new doctor, somebody you don't know, and we'll find a place to have that child. We have no visible means of support. All we have is $2,500 worth of this product that people don't know about 10 feet from where it's made. And we don't have a home. We don't know how we're going to buy a home. Uh, but everything's going to be okay. And I told my dad, I said, you know what? That's the greatest sales job you ever did. I was going to say, if he did. could sell yeah. on that, he could sell her right. on anything. Exactly. But, you know, in, in all fairness to my mom, obviously she was believed in her husband and was a very, very good partner to him. And because, you know, there, it's no joke about the woman behind the man. It's so true. Mm -hmm. I mean... You know, if you, if you find a dysfunctional marriage, it's pretty hard for the guy to be successful. I mean, there's going to be some problems there, maybe. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? So uh, she was a great sport. And so all the families moved down there. And, and uh, my dad said, you know, you either sold or you starved. 
Yeah. And uh, they didn't want to go on unemployment. Uh, it was a different time and place. And so they had a book of photographs of cars that they had built at Curtis. Mm -hmm. They moved down there, stock car racing. Uh, NASCAR had not been founded yet. Uh, they were told by a friend out here that worked at Joel Thorne's. Now, this is just this is weird how these things work. Joel Thorne had gone to Indy many times as a car owner. In fact, he wanted to drive before he was 21. In those days, you had to be 21. He started buying cars in the field and had threatened to buy every car in the field and stop the race if they didn't let him drive. Well, they let him drive. Okay, mm -hmm. unbelievable story. It's been forgotten. One year on his crew, a guy by the name of Bill France was on mm -hmm. that crew. Bill France at that time owned the Amico station in Daytona Beach, Florida. Had not founded NASCAR yet. Right. So they tell my dad and Zeke, hey, you got to go down there. When you go down there, you got to introduce yourself to this guy, Bill France. He's big in that stock car racing down in the south. And he owns a service station. And, you know, you, I, I'm surprised you guys didn't meet him because he was on Joel's team. So they go down there. They have an entree right away, become good friends with Bill France. In 1947, uh, the winter, the December 47, when Bill, Bill France started NASCAR, my dad and uncles were the first sponsors in NASCAR. And they sold him product at his Amico station. So, you know, I mean, it's, it, you could say they lived a charmed life, maybe, and maybe they did, I don't know. But the thing was, networking, hard work, seizing opportunity, I mean, it was never handed to him on a, on a silver plate. Sure. I can guarantee you that. It wasn't so much right place at the right time as that the place they were in, they made it the right place at the right time. And I think that's accurate. Yeah. I really do. Uh, you know, they, they, you know, in anybody's career, you, you are place opportunities in front of you. It's how you react to them. You know what I mean? It's how you seize those opportunities. And do you have your eyes open looking for those opportunities? And they were just hungry, aggressive guys. And so, you know, I mean, here they are. They're, they're, the, they're sponsoring NASCAR cars before anybody else. And uh, they had this great entree with the being, you know, they came from Curtis Craft. I mean, it was the number one race car factory in America at that time. They built the best of the best. So they had credibility when they showed huge, up. Huge, yeah. huge. And when they went down to the south, I tell you a funny story about the stock cars. They said these guys were so ragged on the construction of those cars. Because my dad was an aircraft mechanic again. Yeah. Okay, that's the top. Yeah, okay? you, you don't you know, do it right, you fall out of yeah, the sky. Yeah, you don't want to okay? do a bad job Yeah, and, and, you know, I mean, I was raised that you put your tools in the toolbox a certain way. Because my dad said if you didn't do that at Douglas, the guy, when he'd do inspection, you get dinged. Mm. And so, I mean, you know, it was, and, and the military also taught my dad, you know, you make your bed, you know, you keep your uniform. I mean, yeah. you know, that whole regimentation. And so uh, when they went down there, they said, you know, they had one length bolt for a lot of these stock cars. And if it was too long, they just put more washers on it. And they said it was so backyard. And, yeah. and my Uncle Zeke became very good friends with a guy by the name of Red Vote, who was NASCAR's first superstar mechanic out of Atlanta, Georgia. And he helped design, well, he designed an Indy car, chalked it out on the cement floor for Red that Red built, took to Indy. Right. Didn't have any success with it, but... And so, you know, that credibility, yeah. It, it, well, you just sort of shut your eyes and picture open wheel 1940s and what those cars look like, and then stock car 1940s and what those, they're just night and day completely different. But with the, with the sponsorship, and that is 100% of why racing's around now, uh, where did the idea come from of, let's slap a sticker on the car or let's use a race car to advertise our product. My best guess would be from their dad's auctioneering uh, influence. In order to be a good auctioneer, you've got to be a showman. you got to get the crowd motivated to part with their money. And hopefully you motivate them to part with more of their money than they really want to. Okay? Uh, and, you know, auctioneering is a very interesting thing. Uh, that's, a, that's a subject for another day and a three-hour yeah. dissertation, you know what I mean? Because <laughs> yeah. uh, even today, it's, uh, you know, you wonder, 
uh, who you're bidding against, uh, et cetera. You know, I mean, it's, a, it's a very interesting world. There's and a lot they, of variables. They, they had been raised in that world. I mean, when my, my grandfather would auction off a farm, say somebody lost their farm. Well, he'd have, the, he'd have the kids, my dad and uncles and the girls, go in and sort out all the china and stuff. And if, he found, if they found uh, chipped cups and chipped plates and different stuff, he'd have them put those off to the side. So when he'd start the auction out, you know, you, you always need somebody to be the first person to break the ice. If you've ever been to auction, some of these charity auctions, and I've, I've been the first bidder a lot of times just to help get it going for the person because they're dying up there you yep. know i mean they're just literally dying and so he'd have he'd try to get the plates going and this type of stuff and nobody would bid and so he'd take the damaged plates obviously the audience doesn't know this and he'd say well you know if you guys aren't going to bid on this stuff we're just going to break it up and he'd, start, he'd throw them off onto the stage and just start breaking saucers and cups and plates and of course the audience oh geez don't break that up i you know I'll give you 10 cents maybe, you know, which is yeah. maybe a big bid back then. And he'd get the audience going. Then another trick that they would use was they'd have these mystery boxes. And, and you didn't know what was in it, but, you know, who'd give me a whatever for this box? And so somebody bid, and, of course, the first box they opened up, oh, my God, the guy got a steal. You got that for a dollar? You know, all that? Yeah. Well, you know, the next boxes may not be so good. But, right. <laughs> but you know, I mean, hey. But it's worth it. Yeah, exactly. You know, so that showbiz side. And their dad was, you know, their dad, what I was raised with really came from my grandfather. Mm -hmm. uh, a firm handshake, a quick step. Uh, you meet the same people on the way up that you do on the way down. Mm -hmm. You can always tell a big man by how he treats a little man. Uh, I mean, I, I had all this stuff drilled into me as a, as a young boy. I mean, literally, till I was in high school. Right. My dad just kept drilling this stuff in, and this was from my grandfather. And just how you treat people. You know, uh, you know always be courteous. It costs you nothing. You know, uh, it, you know, a smile is the cheapest thing you have to warm things up. Uh, you know, just all these things. So that's the type of people they were. So they were they were perfect to go out and sell a product and to to build something. You know what I mean? They were very engaging. Uh, they like people, like I do. I like people. I mean, I, the the most valuable asset of my life have been the friends I have and the people I've met. Uh, you know, cars and all this other material stuff we own is fun to own. I mean, I'm not knocking it. It's fun to own. But it doesn't really give you much back like a person can. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You just you cannot have a conversation with a with an inanimate object. Yeah. You know, as well, as rewarding as it is. And and we uh, we went on your your website uh, justicebrothers.com and we we're looking at some of the sponsorships you guys have had over, over the years and and the list. I, I don't it's know how many were on there, but long. I couldn't I couldn't count yeah. how many were on there. So obviously you just keep building scrolling. relationships has yeah, been a you huge know, part of your business. It, it is. I mean, we we've never been a company to slap a decal on a car, write a check, and uh, you know, see in victory lane. You know, we just that's just not our style. We it's always a relationship deal. Well, I know who all are the some people of the, the bigger names that people would recognize that you've sponsored? Well, I'll, I'll start back with my dad and my uncles. Of course, you know, they, they were the first paid sponsor for Don Garlitz, okay? Drag Racing's first legend. Sure. Uh, they, they sponsored Frank Curtis. They were his first paid sponsor in 1950 and won Indy with Frank and Johnny Parsons. They uh, sponsored the Granatelli brothers, uh, Andy, Joe, and Vince. Most people know of Andy Granatelli. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've sponsored Gary Beck, uh, gosh, uh, Don Perdome, uh, Connie Coletta, almost 20 years now, his team, uh, Melanie Troxel, uh, Ron Caps, uh, Buddy Rice, the Indy winner, uh, uh, Gosh, what's a Jeff uh, Ward, the motorcyclist, uh, Jimmy Johnson. I sponsored Jimmy Johnson at the very beginning of his career in stadium trucks. Rick Johnson, the Supercross rider. Uh, they're not related. 
uh, Larry Raglan, we won, I don't know how many Baja 1000s and Baja 500. In fact, Jimmy Johnson drove a uh, Chevy pickup for us and won the Baja 500 one time. Uh, I mean, I mean, I'm, I know I'm leaving out a lot of people here. The backup pickup, Dick Harding. And I mean, we've, I, we've never been that we, I, I mean, I've sponsored high school teams to, to solar powered vehicles to, I mean, if it's got a, if it's got a motor or some form of propulsion, we'll, we'll, we'll You're be there. excited about it. Yeah, exactly. Airplanes, boats, uh, Gosh, lawnmowers, uh, you know, I mean. Have, uh, have you ever wanted to do your own team? Just we have had our own team. Yeah. Yeah, been there, done that. What, uh, what kind of racing were you doing? Been there, done that. You buy a lot of steak <coughs> dinners for people who normally don't eat steak. But anyway, <laughs> you know, it's what? funny. They eat real good when they're on the road when it's yeah. your team. you got to really manage it. it. I'll tell you, the teams, it's a very tough thing. Racing is a tough business. It is a tough, tough business, and it's only gotten tougher. Uh, by evidence by the fact that some NASCAR teams don't have one sponsor the whole season. They may have four, five, six, or one every race. I mean, it's a tough business. It's not, it's not as, as easy as I think a lot of people think it is. Yeah, no, and I don't know anyone who starts now who's looking to make money in it. Yeah, you know, take Jack Roush, you know, and you, you're the director of the Peterson, Terry Cargus. Uh, worked for Jack Roush for yep. a long time. I interviewed Terry several times when he was working for Jack Roush. And I interviewed Jack Roush many times. Jack Roush went to Detroit in a station wagon with $500. He's, he's like my, my family. He's a true American success story. Mm -hmm. I mean, the guy spent a lot of years in drag racing that people, I think, have forgotten about today. Mm -hmm. uh, and now it's all, you know, the stock car stuff and all. But he, that guy's done it. And Connie Coletta. Connie Coletta started out as a racer. He loved to fly. He started flying parts for Ford on his private airplane. And that, and a lot of hard work, he's got an airline now, Coletta Air, with 747s. I've seen it out at uh, LAX. It, it's amazing. Wow. He hauls yeah. troops for the U.S. military. Uh, so there have been a lot of success stories that have come out of racing. I mean, no doubt about it. Uh, but it's a tough game. Yeah, it's a tough game. It's survival of the fittest. Well, and you're not only running uh, this this, this uh, uh, oil additive company and sponsoring all these people, but you're also obviously a huge fan, and you've spent a big portion of your life behind the camera and behind the microphone covering this kind of thing too. How did you get? How did you go from? One thing to the other, because they are a little bit different. Well, you know, my dad, when you have young kids, you want to keep them out of trouble. Okay, today you want to keep them off certain parts of the Internet. And right. that's, that's a problem my dad that's didn't have to deal with. Yeah, yeah that's, that's not a problem my dad had to deal right. with. But, you know, an idol mine is the devil's workshop is sort of the uh, idea here. And so my dad always was trying to keep me busy. And on a weekend he'd say, Ed, what are you doing? Well, I was going to go down the street and play with, you know, Bill and John. No, I don't think so. Well, Dad, I, I want to go down and play. No, I don't think so. You go down there, you're going to get in trouble. No, no, we're just going to play. No, you're coming with me. If you come with me, you're going to learn something. You go play with your buddies, you're not going to learn everything. And so that was, uh, yeah. not that I didn't play with my friends, because I did a lot, but that was a lot of my weekends. And, and I did learn a lot. And I had a lot of friends that were my dad's age. And uh, somebody made a comment a few years back at the SEMA show when I was walking down the aisle to my uh, daughter, Courtney, because this guy said, hey, Ed, how you doing? And the guy said, does your dad know anybody under 80 years of age? <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, I, I, I really feel blessed that I got to meet all those people and got to know them because it was really a gift that my dad gave me. But so how did I get into the photography? Well, my, and not just the photography, the well, photography, the design, the <laughs> magic. I know, I, it's magic. like I got ADD. But anyway, yeah, you got a lot of things going on. Well, you know, I, I, I was, again, I was raised to dream big and, and go after your dreams, you know. And I wanted to be a sign painter when I was a kid. I always have liked art. I wanted to be a cartoonist. I wanted to be a sign painter. I like art, okay? I like design. I like color. I like 
the way things look. I guess I, I'm a visually oriented person, you might say, mm -hmm. if they do a profile or whatever. And so my dad had me go to a sign painter shop, got me to be a flunky for a summer. And at the end of the summer, the sign painter told me, I'll never forget this, I had a great time, learned how to paint signs. I couldn't paint a sign, but I knew the process, okay? Mm -hmm. And, and he, the guy sat me in the front seat of his truck, and he goes, son, really enjoyed having you here for this summer, but I want to tell you something. Don't become a sign painter. Now, I don't know if my dad put him up to this. You know, I mean, I, I wouldn't put it past my dad, but he said, don't become a sign painter because there's no money in this business. He said, you can do the same thing at a drawing table and you'll get paid more money. So, I mean, this is like word coming from God sure, yeah. for me. You know, I mean, I'm sitting there with my jaw probably, you know, open, you know, and going, oh, this is from the man, you know. So, I mean, I did. So I wanted to get into artwork and design. And that's sort of what led me to there. And uh, But I thought, you know, I don't really like this because you'd be stuck inside all the time. And my dad was a big photo buff. Their dad, as an auctioneer, had a camera. And this is when cameras were rare. Yeah. You know, today everybody's got a phone and there's six billion of them in the world has a camera. So cameras are cheap today. This is like a commodity. It's not anything special anymore. But so my dad loved photography and all during the war he shot pictures all throughout Europe. I got these incredible photo albums of, of bombed out cities and all this military stuff and all its great memories. And so he fostered this interest in photography for me. And uh, I loved it. And I was going to the races. Mm -hmm. And so it just was a natural thing that I started shooting pictures at the races. And I talked my way out onto the, the starting line. My dad might help me talk my way out on the starting line. Next thing you know, I literally am shooting for the magazines at 14. Now, I know that sounds maybe hard to believe today, but there were a lot less attorneys back then. Uh, there was a lot less uh, lawsuits for safety reasons, et cetera, like that. And people didn't really care. You know what I mean? And uh, so... Well, you look at pit crew guys yeah, with cigarettes in their mouth back then. There yeah, wasn't a whole lot mixing, of... Wearing T-shirts. Uh, yeah, yeah, wearing yeah. T-shirts. And I mean, hey, you know what? It was a different time. And I, really, I've known very few, less than... Less than uh, a handful of people that I know as photographers have gotten killed in the line of duty. So it's a really pretty safe profession if you use your head. Now, you know, obviously you've got to use your head. So I, my, my dad or one of my uncles would take me to the races, and I got pictures of my uncle Gus in his wheelchair in the background down at Lyons Drag Strip. And I could tell you, oh, Gus took me to that race that day. And I'm out on the line with all the rest of the pros shooting pictures and then once I got my driver's license of course man I mean that was that was a ticket to ride now yeah. I could come over to Peterson Publishing and I sold as a freelancer Peterson a lot of pictures drag racing USA and started making the rounds and all those guys are still my friends today and I have the greatest admiration for the photographers that I that I shot next to uh, it's uh, photography is an important part of history recording uh, I mean a book without photos really is is not as rich as a mm -hmm. book with photos. And I mean, if, you, if you're familiar with any of the books I've published, I've published a couple books. I started a publishing company, my wife and I. They're very rich in photography. And I go through and Photoshop every single one of those photos myself. And, and I don't change history. I just clean them up, get rid of dust, m make it just the best it can be. Yeah. Adjust contrast, levels, you know, uh, curves, you know, all the technical side of the image. But... But anyway, uh, so that's, that's how I got into that. So that was my first step into the media. And so then when I went to college, you know, for, I have a voice that a lot of people in my life have said, you know, you should do radio. Are you going to go into radio? And it's always been there. I've always liked public speaking. And so I started doing some radio intermittently way back when, way before I ever got connected to do Car and Driver, and then I got the job to be host of Road and Track. And uh, it was a great time. And I worked with Tom Bryant, the editor of Road and Track at that time. A great guy, gave me free run to do whatever I wanted on the show. Totally put his full trust and faith mm -hmm. in me. And uh, I ended up winning the MPG Best of the Year Award. I'm the only guy 
broadcasts on-air personality to win the best of the year uh-huh. uh, MPG award. Yeah, it, I, it was the motor really. Press it was, Guild. Yeah, Motor Press Guild. I mean, there there hasn't even been another person that's made it to the finalist. Uh, but but anyway, and so you know, I mean, look, I'm very blessed. I mean. I'm sitting in the audience that night, I was as shocked as maybe anybody else was. Yeah. But, but you know, it it what that did for me, it 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 was a great affirmation that okay, you're doing a good job. And you know, you always wonder. I don't care who you are, you always wonder. You feel you're doing your best. You want to hope that you're doing your best. Uh, and I'm one of those guys. I want to do my best. And to get that, it's like okay, it's an attaboy on your back. Hey, you are doing the best yeah. you know your peers think sure. you're doing a good job so you know that was that was a great thing but so i you know i love i love doing what you guys do here uh talking to people because it's really interesting you know i've been to too many because i've had a lot of 80 year old friends yeah. okay i've been to too many funerals where i've learned the great stuff about the guy's life when he's laying in the box in the front of the church uh, hank Pernelli good friend of my dad and my uncle Zeke. I go to his funeral in the little town of Siamagre, and I find out that Hank was on the U.S. cycling Olympic team in the 1934 Olympics. Now, I thought that was cool. I would have loved to heard some memories. I had no idea this guy ever... Talked to him about it, yeah. Yeah, because when he got to be an older man, he didn't look like a cyclist. Right. You know what I mean? (laughs) You know what I mean? But... That that really stuck with me. I mean, obviously, I can quote who it was in the instance right here today. And I said, you know, there's too many great stories of people that a lot of times when people get older, they don't like to talk about it. They get bashful. And, and Will Rogers had a saying that, that I agree with. It ain't bragging if you've done it. Yep. Okay? Mm-hmm. There's a lot difference about sharing. There's a big difference between sharing an experience and boasting about an experience. You know, the boaster, who wants to listen to that person? But to listen to somebody's life experiences, because I'm a firm believer that history repeats itself. And if I can find out what their mistakes were, so I don't make those same mistakes, that's like finding gold in a mine. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is unbelievable. And I have. I've learned so much from so many people, and and it's had a huge impact on me. I mean, really, every time I meet somebody, I try to see what it is I can take away from that person. And and it's not like being a thief, but what is it that they have that is good that I can take away from this meeting? And, And I've always found there's always something good there somewhere an yeah. experience even from a, a, a terrible person i can learn something from that person sometimes you just how not, not to, to be yeah. right, right, right exactly you're also i guess a bit of a historian you have your own collection uh you have a racing collection that you've uh, uh you know acquired over the years what what made you want to get in and start collecting race cars well my dad and i did that together and and i'm conti- i'm carrying it on and you know, I have a great respect. I don't know. I, you know, I, what, what makes any of us what we are? Uh, I, you know, who knows? Who knows? I mean, I, why am I so interested in history? I don't know. You know, I've always thought that history is a subject that's taught to people at too young of an age. I think history would be a great subject if you could teach it to people that are maybe at least 25 or older. Because really, under 25, ah, you really don't care. Yeah, I could not yeah. care less you know what about I mean? pilgrims when I was a right. kid. Ne- right, neither did I. You yeah. know what I mean? Why is this street named this? You know, like Olympic Avenue. Well, it happens to be the Olympics. And if you don't and, care, you, know, you yeah. don't remember it. That's it. You ha- that's it. You have to be passionate and care. You're right. I mean, that's really the bottom line. It, it, it's, people say, well, you know, I don't remember this. Well, it tells me they don't care about yeah. that. Right. And that's okay. You know, that's okay. Uh, but, you know, I, for whatever reason, you know, I mean, I will, I'll, I love to read, mm-hmm. okay? I think reading is, I think reading, writing, and arithmetic, I think those are important. And I think we fail a lot of kids in school today on that. Uh, I think a kid that comes out of school that can't read well is really, really being handicapped. 
It's not that you can't make a good living, because I know guys that can't read a stitch, but they're great talkers and they've made great livings. But I think you're not really getting, I find the people I meet like, well, give you an example, Dan Green, the famous race car driver, a voracious reader, a huge historian. I mean, there is so much more uh, beneath the surface for that guy than what most people think. Other than a guy just had a you know a heavy foot on the loud pedal. I mean, you know, there this guy is an unbelievably deep his, history-loving person. I mean, it's amazing. And so I think that the ability to read is is a, a gift. And so I'll read anything. I mean, I look. I live in a household of women. I, I'll pick up a, a woman's magazine and even see. I think it's interesting to just see a different slant on things. I'm the guy that reads the cereal box every morning, even though I read it the past five mornings, you know, just looking for a mistake or, you know, and why did they put the color here, you know, because I'm looking at it from a design standpoint, too. Would I have done this differently? I mean, I'm just one of those guys I like to deconstruct things, you know. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I just, I love history, and, and I have, I, I've been blessed with great recall. Why? I don't know. You know, I mean, is it because I'm passionate about it or is it because I'm wired differently? I don't know. These are the questions that we don't know the answers to. You yeah. know what I mean? But I, I do. I mean, I could tell you, you know, the, the Chevrolet logo was, uh, came off of a wallpaper design. Uh, that was in the uh, People's Almanac. They wrote a neat little story. Uh, they were in France and he liked the, that Chev the Chevrolet bow tie. Right, right tore off a piece of the wallpaper and that's where that that million dollar logo came from it's amazing where trivia i guess comes from just something that i gets, love trivia it gets put into your head yeah and sometimes you realize most of the time you don't realize it but every now and then you'll have something go into your head and you'll think well i'll never forget that that is in there and that's going to be there forever yeah uh so it's, it, you're right it's it's so true and you know what i'm full of useless trivia no, that, that's know. the best trivia. My family knows trivia. that. I'll show you where Janis Joplin overdosed. You know, I mean, it, I, I love L.A. trivia. I love L.A. I love this city. Yeah. I love, you, you know what? Every block you go down, something significant has happened in this city. I mean, literally, blocks away from here, um, the Beatles handler, uh, God, um, uh, Mal Evans, was shot by the police in a in a mistaken shooting and then this was the guy that was the roadie for the beatles yeah. was just shot just a few blocks away from the peterson here anyway so i feel like we plan to talk about cars and additives and those are the two things we've talked about the probably the least well whatever so, to, i've to, enjoyed being no, here with you guys it's very interesting but you kind of come full you circle a fascinating history yeah what what are you automotively into now car wise what kind of racing do you enjoy what kind you know of, i really i like it all i love drag racing i love road racing i love uh, indie car i love stock car uh you know obviously some eras i like better of some forms of racing than other uh but i also realize that uh you know progress happens and you have to keep moving forward and, and things have to evolve uh, I love I love modern technology in cars. Uh, I don't like it so much in race cars. Yeah. Uh, like I think it's very odd that people love that uh, a Formula One car has basically like a uh, automatic transmission in effect. You know, paddle shifters. Okay. Uh, but if you ask these same people if they want that in their car, they go, No, no, I want a stick. Yeah. And I go, Okay, so wait a minute. In my world. I think the race car should have a stick because that proves their, their ability more. And I'll go for the paddle shifter in my car because I'm driving in traffic. And, you know, I drove a stick for 30 years in L.A. traffic. And, and I can tell you something. It, the my left, wears off quickly. Yeah, my left leg didn't get any stronger than my right leg. It yeah. just got worn out more. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I, I, I like technology in modern cars. I love, I love traction control. Uh, for most people, I think it's a great security blanket. I uh, like torque vectoring in the rear ends of cars. Uh, fuel injection is great. It's much more efficient than carburetors. I mean, I think most people realize that now. And, you know, fuel injection now, they're learning how to put it under higher pressure. And Because, you know, the empty gas can is more dangerous, more boom than the full gas can. Mm -hmm. So if you create that empty gas can effect in the combustion chamber, that's all you need to drive a piston. So you don't need to dump a lot of fuel 
in the in the cylinder to and that's the way the carburetor was you just dump more fuel yeah. in now we're learning how to atomize that and ignite the fume so to speak and so you know i mean i love where we're going with cars and it's it's all about efficiency and is that is that uh, technology helping your products to yeah it is because actually you know uh, Fuel injection is a lot more temperamental than a carburetor. It gets clogged easier. It, it gets dirtier, dirty easier. So uh, for for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And so while some people would think some technology has eliminated the need for some of our products, it actually, on the other hand, has created the need for new products. So, yeah, I mean, some of the diesels run very, very dirty. Uh, I'm not going to name any particular brands, but there's certain brands of diesel that uh, coke up with the soot because diesel tends, you know, it's a much dirtier fuel by, by just normal definition. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, what you have on a diesel engine is you lose horsepower over time as this happens, but you don't notice it. It's like heart disease. Slow. Yeah, it's slow. You don't realize how bad you're feeling until you go in and you have uh, the artery job done, they open it up, and you go, my gosh, I can actually breathe. I can go up the stairs now. Man, I didn't realize I felt this good back years ago. And that's what happens when we do some of our services on some of the diesel engines. I mean, all of a sudden they find that it, it uh, like on some of the buses, it doesn't go into derating, as they call it, and, it, and you know, they can pull up faster, you know, in a different gear. You know, I mean, you just tell the engine's not working as hard, and you got more torque, more power. You know. Ed, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, if anybody wants to check out your products uh, and your motorsports and just rich history, go to justicebrothers.com and follow the Justice Brothers at twitter.com/justicebrothersinc. We could do this for seven more hours. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, well, look at and for those that are still awake. <laughs> you know, but anyway, no, I, I really appreciate coming in here with you guys. We'll definitely I, have you on. Again. I, I love, I love the museum. You know, I was, I think, member number twenty-six of the checkered flag, two hundred founding member, original member, and all that stuff. I love the Peterson <clears throat> Museum. I love museums in general, all museums. Uh, you know, could be uh, the museum of uh, paper clips. I'd go look at it. But this is this is an iconic museum in in the automotive world. And uh, it's, you know, every single director that's been here from Dick Messer to Ken Gross to Buddy Pep to Terry Cargus now have all been great people, passionate people involved at this facility. And I'm proud to be associated with it. It's been a real pleasure to be here with you guys. Well, thank you so well, much for coming you. in. And uh, anyone who's listening to this, we have new episodes now every Tuesday and Thursday at carstories.com. Uh, also subscribe on iTunes for past and future episodes. Uh, once again, thank you so much, Ed, for coming in. Thank you. Thanks, Ed.